Thank you so much for joining us in this episode of the BFO Young Ambassadors podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by JP Monk, who is the Head of Operational Risk Consulting at KPMG. JP, how are you going? Good, thanks. How are you going? Good, thanks. So without further ado, tell me a bit about your role um, and tell me about the career journey uh, that you sort of had to get there today. It's been an interesting kind of uh, time lately, especially but my role's really focused on the operational risk uh, function, mostly across the banking system, but also other elements of financial services and indeed uh, non-banks as well, which has been uh, quite evolutionary over the last sort of decade, notwithstanding the recent changes to that because of COVID. So the role is quite broad and diverse in terms of the focal points, uh, but really uh, anything that has an implication all the way from Basel technical operational risk through to uh, the day-to-day sort of management of that as a concept. Even in terms of the sort of environment that we've had, you know, over the past year, not sort of mentioning any specific companies, but, you know, ASIC recently did issue one of the largest fines um, in history for AML CTF breaches. In terms of, you know, the operational side of things, how are we actually... I suppose, adapting to new challenges that, you know, technology might sort of be able to assist us with um, or even sort of, you know, compliance on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the shift has been a lot more towards so-called non-financial risk nowadays uh, and I guess what's what's hiding in the background or what things haven't we paid enough attention to. And that's kind of always been the uh, the intention behind even the, the advanced risk frameworks that are now not in vogue as much now in the sense that you wanted to get a feel for what's emerging on the horizon, what could go wrong and where might it come from and if we think back to i think in the 2007 year pandemic risk was was front and center and it was uh, the perspective that hey one day this is going to be a problem that yep. got sidelined when the global financial crisis happened apart from maybe bill gates uh, recognition of it but it's obviously front and center now but that aside the various sort of uh, shortcomings uh, pre and post the banking royal commission have highlighted i think the importance of getting it right mostly by the the magnitude of uh, what a failure looks like which means i think now it's it's everybody's game a bit more uh, so everyone has to care about it more than they have historically and that also means that uh, there's an opportunity to uh, have things like incidents, near misses, control frameworks, as believe it or not, you know, part of a, a discussion for most uh, business leaders, uh, not just the operas gurus, as uh, was somewhat uh, an unintended consequence of the framework that we had. Yeah, I think that's quite beneficial to talk about as well in the context of young graduates starting in finance and, you know, operational risk is something that's becoming more and more significant to think about on a day-to-day basis in terms of, you know, how we actually do our job. So along your career journey, what have been your biggest learnings and how have you actually used these to make yourself a better leader? Yeah, good one. Uh, I suppose external shocks haven't been so shocking. Uh, I was quite early in my career, at least in banking, when the financial crisis hit, which is when I personally took a plunge from a corporate sort of sales, uh, so lending for uh, a particularly franchise finance into the complete opposite end of the spectrum, uh, regulating banks and other ADIs uh, at APRA. So I think sometimes when there's a big shift in the tide, especially for young people, uh, it's an opportune time to think about what you want to do, what you want to be famous for, and really what your your passion is, because I think it's really hard to know that before you start your first or even your second job. And in terms of, you know, when you actually sort of started straight out of university to now, 
What have you actually found in terms of, you know, the expectations that you might have had going into the workforce or any sort of, you know, preconceptions that you might have had, which may or may not have held true? Uh, it's a sad thing. I probably haven't really left university uh, in the sense that uh, I guess if you think about from a bachelor's perspective, I've kind of been doing one thing after another and uh, and pursued research as well. Uh, but my, my disposition there has changed a bit over the years. But I think as a bushy-tailed kind of uh, undergraduate, the biggest kind of things that had happened then were the Enron scandal and all the great reasons why that would never be allowed to happen again. And then, you know, history's been a bit different to what we thought would be the case at the time. So I think whatever your plans are or your dreams for the future, just be aware that things could be quite different. There could be a much bigger plan than, than the one that you've got in mind. Uh, so I think being adaptable to that is, is crucial uh, yeah. and being able to learn from that environment too. In terms of, you know, organizational culture, uh, how important is it for an organization uh, in the financial services industry to have a corporate culture centered around ethical conduct, uh, especially in a post-Hane Royal Commission era? I think it's incredibly important uh, and it's been on the radar, even APRA's perspective, it's been called out publicly since uh, I was there, uh, which is uh, becoming uh, more and more distant but it's always been recognized as very important well even in a documented sense at least for a few decades now but i think ethical conduct means different things to different people at an organizational level particularly a large organization with many tiers or silos it's really hard to be sure that we mean the same thing so it's very easy to miscommunicate and kind of agree on a conceptual statement without really knowing or considering all of the manifestations of what we're agreeing to. So I think that's that's a tricky part. So it's incredibly important, incredibly hard to measure would be another thing. Not impossible, perhaps. And I think that's why, uh, certainly from the regulatory lens, there is still a, a heightened focus on the topic. And certainly... There's the, or was growing to become an adage, I suppose, that you know a bad culture when you see one. And I think that is becoming a focal point. How can we determine what a good culture is and therefore what's the delta between the two? I think that we're still trying to solve that one uh, and thinking is emergent, but there are some clear steps that can be taken to address it. You know, on that topic of, of change or of, on culture, you know, in terms of actually instigating cultural change, are there ways for individuals and large companies to make an impact? And if yes, then how so? I think so. I mean, just today, uh, I'm always sort of trolling through uh, LinkedIn comments and various other things. Yeah. And someone had, had brought up the Gandhi quote, uh, you know, be the change that you wish to see in the world. And I think that's a really pertinent one in that. And look, there are a lot of great Gandhi quotes. It's not the only one. But uh, I think the notion that if you want to, to drive that agenda, then you can do that in in the job that you perform, that might not be the the most significant one. You might not be the CEO of uh, an ASX 10 firm. I mean, you may well be, right? But it's important for anyone who has a passion for it to recognize that the way that they go about their occupation is a great place to start. And then it's the little ways that they contribute as well, and certainly those that don't show up in the job description. So that can be through industry associations, it can be through uh, other affiliations, alumni communities, etc. And there are quite a number of those in and out of financial services whereby uh, we can all sort of learn from each other. And it's important to note that 
anything that relates to, uh, I think, ethics, uh, probably to some extent risk and compliance, these are probably not, I mean, they can be argued to be competitive advantages, but they're not like uh, things that amount to collusion. Yeah. I think it's really important that we can corral around a, a common, particularly as an industry, to be able to you know, uplift the performance. And do you think everything that we see in whether it be the AFR, the Sydney Morning Herald, or just, you know, different sources of media, how does it impact, I suppose, employee morale, you know, if you might be at a company that might be doing well or might be not doing so well in terms of, you know, the whole conduct sort of side of things? So what's your perspective on that? Well, I mean, I can't imagine it's inspirational to to wake up in the morning and see your employer kind of uh, on the front page being accused of something awful. It's a double-edged thing. The far sceptical view, you've got to sell newspapers, so you've got to make the headline enticing. On the other hand, we really need good and uh, incisive journalism to pick up where you know, things are not right and nothing, not enough is being done about it or not enough is known about that. So I think to a large degree, we have a lot to be thankful for in that respect. Uh, so it's important and it's a, it's a tough one to deal with, particularly given that the institution for any large institution, it, it's going to be a large place with a lot of different agendas, a lot of different strategic uh, things to consider simultaneously. And that, for the majority, isn't because you personally did something wrong or isn't because you were responsible for whatever that shortcoming is, yet you sort of feel like you're tarred with that brush. Uh, and I think it's a tough one to have to live with, but nonetheless highlights the importance of uh, of finding ways to, to turn that around. So I think if you want to improve reputation or trust, sometimes you need to wait for an opportunity. And I think to a large extent, the pandemic has been that in that uh, it's a chance to demonstrate how you can be really supportive of the communities and societies in which you operate, particularly as a financial services organization. And, you know, now that you've sort of mentioned, I suppose, COVID-19 and all of the implications that it's had on the industry, when you do have such a large workforce working from home, working remotely, connected to their colleagues through, you know, online messaging and whatnot, how can employees, colleagues, teams continue to service clients the best that they can while still upholding you know, these ethical values? Everything sort of changes. So all of our core assumptions about how we do our job changes, including the commute that to a large extent doesn't exist for a lot of people, uh, although maybe you should also imitate that. We need to be a lot more deliberate about how we work with each other and how we collaborate on a strategic you know, sales and service level. And to be you know, personable, approachable, like if we're in a customer-facing role, then that, that, the shape of that's very different if we're doing it from home, for example. Some of us still have to report to a physical environment so that we can do that. But certainly the support functions are probably not going to be where they used to be. So that means we've got to be able to consider, well, what changes, what used to be really easy that's now really difficult. And then on the on the flip side, what used to be really hard and now is really easy because we've enabled digital tools, be that signatures, workflow, whatever, whereby, in fact, this has highlighted opportunities to do these things much more efficiently. As much as it's been horrible and, and awful on a global scale, uh, there have been a lot of silver linings in the sense that, you know, there have been things that we thought we could maybe do, but we're thinking about it on the back burner that we've had to just try uh, and see if it works. Uh, and in a lot of instances, they have. Uh, so I think that's helpful. Uh, but also internally and externally being cognizant that this is a really trying time for everyone you know, around the world, um, and indeed still in Australia. Uh, and only very recently for our friends uh, in Victoria, uh, one that's, you know, really 
crippling almost uh, on a mental health level. And I think it's a lot harder to see when people are struggling because, you know, you see maybe the, the moments that they're strong in front of a camera or, or even if not on a camera, just uh, over a telephone. So the opportunities that we used to have to just check in on how people are going just aren't there anymore. So we've got to find a, an inorganic way of almost replicating that so that we don't uh, completely miss on some of those agenda items. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, when we are talking in a, a work from home context, I guess the number one uh, sort of group that comes to mind is all the graduates that would have finished their degree at the end of last year and actually started full time in, in February or March transitioning to working from home. But in terms of these graduates or maybe even interns that might be uh, interning over the upcoming summer, say they're trying to make their mark on the world of finance or professional services and want to become a future leader uh, within that industry. What advice would you give to them and what sort of learnings can you sort of divulge uh, that you've had that might benefit them? Uh, Yeah, look, I guess uh, I'm strengthened by the fact that I've lived through a global crisis. It wasn't even a recession in Australia, but we can all say we've lived through one of those now. And I think that's really good because uh, for a really long time, there was a growing population of the workforce who hadn't. You know, didn't know what that feels like uh, or hadn't witnessed that. And I think it's really hard to imagine strategically or from a risk angle or, or any perspective, you know, how that actually feels rather than just uh, a prediction on a spreadsheet as to what it might hypothetically be like. So when something is in our lived experience, it's a great learning opportunity. One of the encouraging things I did see uh, was from someone who was a graduate, I think in 2009 or 2010, just saying, yeah, it's tough because That was a really rough time to be coming out of uni in particular and uh, everyone cutting discretionary expenses and grad programs being slashed, if not entirely, then by a large percentage, which meant that even if you had an offer, now you don't. Uh, So I think those who who got the job and started work two weeks before we all had to work from home, you've still got a job, hopefully. That's a good thing. It's a good opportunity to accelerate a lot of learning. and identify those leaders who are coping well and who you can learn from, even from those who are struggling a bit. And, you know, how can you help them out? How can you be part of that bigger picture? Because I think that's a really big opportunity for people uh, in that situation. And for those uh, who are graduating in the coming months and who are looking to to start next year, you know, this isn't over yet. So it's still going to be a long and, and hard slog. Having said that, I think most places are cognizant that you do still need to invest in the next generation, and I hope to see that continue. So to a large extent, it's the same generic advice I'd give to grads in any case is uh, just soak up as much as you can and pick up what you can. Don't wait to be asked or told what to do. Try to imagine what would be or what could be helpful because now is as good a time as any that leadership may not have all the answers and may not have a plan for the next two weeks, let alone 12 to 24 months. So you get to be part of that conversation and you might have some of the best ideas in the room. So kind of put that bet on yourself sometimes. I'm not sure what KPMG's graduate intake was like this year, but have you actually sort of seen younger people at the company step up after the onset of COVID-19 and working from home? I think so. I can't speak for the whole firm either, but I can for the the pockets and divisions that I'm a part of. Uh, There are a lot of informal, inorganic, 
not like social committees or anything, but just catch ups and uh, and you know whether it be trivia game nights. And it's it's not just about that; it's also about the formal uh, learning and education program. Now that we are all distant, we've got to change how we do that. Uh, in the same way that universities have had to go to an online environment for delivering formal lectures that are you know graded for for degree credit, so too is the on the job training and what we normally have for inductions. Uh, and grads have played a really big role in not only determining what do they want and need from that, but also being a part of structuring and building it. So that makes it a really rewarding uh, opportunity for them to to be part of and start leading their own development from day one, uh, which I think is great. Well, JP, it's been lovely to hear from you. I think anyone who's sort of a university student or a young graduate or anyone you know who might be sort of tuning in will get a lot out of what you said. I think your insights in particular referencing things like ethics or conduct do tie in quite closely, I suppose, with your role in terms of operational risk. But it has been you know, quite insightful to hear your thoughts and I do appreciate you making the time to chat to us today. Yeah, awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and uh, hope to be in touch. <laughs>